Well, it's my honor. Come on. It's my honor to introduce Rick Joyner tonight. Come on up, Rick. We love you. We honor you as a father and a pioneer. Greatest days ahead, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. Thank you for anything warm. And uh, no, I believe there are certain things you can do and get martyr points for them. I just left the most beautiful weather. Unbelievable conference, but I want to be in the will of God. That's where you really get warm. That's, uh, and uh, I do believe I have a message for you, but I am really fascinated with this church. I love history, and uh, I love the history of this place, and it's an honor to be here, but uh, I think we need stretching also. The, um, I think what is coming is, you know, it's built on the foundation of, of the moves of God that have happened in the past, and we always stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. But there's also, I think, going to be something very unique about what is unfolding. And, uh, you know, God loves diversity. He makes every snowflake different. And he made all of us different. And, um, you know, I think every move of God in history has been different. I mean, you read the New Testament. Everything Jesus did was unique. He didn't pray the same prayer twice. He, uh, the way he healed people was different every time. The... Uh, You know, he was alive, and we're in the river of life. They say a river uh, changes daily. It says you can never step into the same river twice. The rivers are going somewhere. We're not in the lake of life or the pond of life. We're in the river of life. So where are we going? You know, where are we going? How are we, are we going to get there? Now, you know, just pondering the name of this church here, this place. And, um, you know, there's a theological principle of first mention. Where something is first mentioned in the scriptures, usually a revelation. It's a principle, not a law. But usually it's a revelation of its most basic purpose. And um, there can be other unique things revealed in its first mention. But do you know where the first place in Scripture that God's house is mentioned? When Jacob had a dream. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that was a revelation of the most basic purpose of the church. Remember, Jacob had the dream. He saw a ladder reach into heaven, the messengers of God ascending and descending upon that. And I think that is precisely what the church is called to, the place of access to heaven. That's the first place. It is mentioned in Scripture that God had a house, that God had a house, and it was the place of access. Now, that word mess is often translated angel, but it was, I don't think he was talking about what we think the angelic beings. I think he was talking about us. The messengers of God, our most basic purpose, and the most basic purpose of God's house is to enter into the heavenly realm and then bring back to the earth evidence of God's reality, of heaven's reality. And also of Heaven's authority over any condition on the earth. So, are we entering? And uh, it's also interesting that we talk about the outpourings of the Holy Spirit. 
We don't talk about the downpourings. It's coming out. You know, and ascending into heaven, you may not leave your chair. You may not leave your seat. And uh, we always think of it up there, but Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It is right here. Who was it? Elizabeth Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every bush is aflame with the fire of God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just pick the berries. Do we see? Do we see? I think if, we, if the eyes of our heart were open, our spiritual eyes, what we see would be very different than what we're seeing with our natural eyes. But that's one of the things that we're after, having our spiritual eyes opened. We have the example, a great example of that, when Elisha had an entire army come after him. And his, you know, his servant is just, you know, panicking. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes so he'll calm down. Lord, open his eyes. And he immediately said, whoa, those who are with us are way more than those who are with them. They don't have a chance. We need our eyes open. Now, we tend to look at the old covenant prophets as that's the standard. That's what we're trying to reach to. But it's really supposed to be the floor. We have a better covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul said that the glory that Moses experienced, who was the greatest prophet of that covenant, he said we're supposed to be experiencing a greater glory. We have a better covenant. Doesn't mean we're better, doesn't mean we're more righteous or smarter or Anything else, but we have a better covenant. We have a covenant based on the blood of the Lamb, on what he accomplished. That's much better than anything that could have been accomplished by the sacrifice of animals. You remember that case in the Old Testament when the Israel was prevailing against the heathen king, and the heathen king took his son and sacrificed him on the wall, and it said, in great wrath came against Israel, and they fled. Now, there's power in sacrifice. Sometimes the, the Satanists and the demonics know it more than God's people. Now, if the sacrifice of the son of a heathen king could have that much power, how much power does the sacrifice of the son of God have? You know? So to me, the basic issue of faith is, do we see him? Faith is not a formula, it's not a principle, it's not working ourselves up to have a certain emotion or even thoughts. Or True faith is just seeing the one that we believe, who he is and where he sits. Do we see him? And not only that, when we see him, we're called to actually be seated with him. And that's not a doctrine. I mean, it is a doctrine, but it's not meant to be just a doctrine. Nothing is meant to be just a doctrine. You know, righteousness, we're told in Romans 10.10, 10, it's by believing our hearts, not just our minds, that it results in righteousness. Do we really believe this in our heart? And that's what we're aspiring to. Now, one of my favorite modern prophets, very unique one, was Winston Churchill. Amazing. He was a prophet to the nations, a prophet to his times. He, is, he prophesied things that are just now coming to pass. Do you realize that? Now, this is all authenticated. Uh, there's a great book written on it called Churchill, The Prophetic Statement. Statesman by James C. Humes, and uh, but he he did a great work and he, you know, he had the memos, he had he had the proof, he backed up what he wrote about Churchill. And of course, it's it's history, you know. Uh, 
But let me just read a few things because I think there are many kinds of prophets and we need to be stretched in hearing God speak and who he speaks from. I think one of the greatest prophets in our time was, in our times, he's still alive, but was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Extraordinary man of God, man of extraordinary prophetic vision. He claimed to be, you know, carrying at least some of the mantle of Tolstoy, and, you know, uh, I think he certainly did have that anointing. Tolstoy, it was said about him that mankind has never seen been seen by more discerning eyes than those of Leo Tolstoy. Now, I would say, except for Jesus, that may be true. You can, I mean, in two pages, he could write and tell you about a carriage driver, and in two pages, you felt like you've known him for most of your life. It was just stunning the way he, he understood not only people in such a depth, and what motivates us, and what controls us often, but he understood the times. And uh, he was a member of the nobility, count, he was a count. You know where the word count came? You know where our word county comes from? Guess what? Count. You know why? You know how big a, most counties are? That's about how much land your average count owned back then. That's where we got the word county. But uh, they were extraordinary wealthy people because wealth was in property then. And uh, Leo Tolstoy was a count. He gave away everything he had and resolved to live the most simple life he could as a cobbler. He, and he did his best to obey the Beatitudes of Jesus and all of the, the teachings of Jesus. He was converted while he was writing his classic, War and Peace. There's revelation in that book that exactly fits what's going on in America right now. And, uh, and did prophesy what was to take place in Russia in the Bolshevik Revolution and things like that. But amazing guy. But there, there's some, pe some people that see on, they, they really are prophets to the nations. Some have great gifts of personal prophecy. Uh, some have some of each. Uh, I think you can see, though, the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets in Scripture was the scope of their vision. Now, I want, I want to just share a few of the things that Churchill prophesied because they're happening today. Many of them are unfolding today and are relevant to us today. And by the way, I did prophesy back in 2014 that the New England Patriots were going to win this Super Bowl that year. <laughs> and I didn't do it just before the Super Bowl. I did it early in the season because the Lord told me that. I honestly didn't like it. I said, Lord, is there another sign you can give me? <laughs> they beat our Panthers in the Super Bowl. I didn't. And, uh, but he said, no. He said, they, they were going to win as a sign that patriotism is going to win. And uh, I think there was a sign in this year's victory of the Patriots. Patriotism is really going to win. And there's a reason why. And we need to understand because one of the main things we're trying to do is align ourselves with God so we think like he does. We see with his eyes. We understand with his heart. Why does he care about patriotism? Because it says he made the nations and he gave them boundaries. And there's a, a serious curse that comes upon anyone who would remove the ancient boundaries. Now, why is that important to God? Doesn't he just want to blend us and meld us all into one thing? No, he made us unique. God's unity is not a unity of conformity. It's a unity of diversity. And he, and he does not want the uniqueness 
of any of his creation destroyed. And I believe one of the main strategies of the devil is to blur the distinctions that God has made. Because, you know, we have to have the unique races and cultures and nations to reveal him. When he said he made man in his image, he didn't mean he made us to have arms and legs like he does. I don't even know if, you know, he appears in that form because we relate, but I don't think it meant that. I think he meant man, he made mankind in his image and it takes all of mankind to reveal him. When Paul said, we have the mind of Christ, he didn't say, I have the mind of Christ. It takes all of us to come together. It's like each one of us has been given one cell of the mind of Christ. And unless we can come together, we'll never have his full mind. <coughs> we prophesy in part. We see in part. We know in part. We prophesy in part. Nobody has a whole picture. So if we're going to see the full picture, we've got to put ours together with others. And you know who's usually got the part you need? Somebody you really don't like. <laughs> Believe it or not, for us to get where we're going to have to go, where we're going to have to go, we're going to have to love each other. It's going to boil down to that, believe it or not. And uh, But let me just, lest I digress too far, read a few of the things that, first a couple of things that... Uh, Churchill said, he said, a politician thinks of the next election, but a statesman thinks of the next generation. And then he said, the new century, speaking of the 20th century, he wrote this in 1899, he said, the new century will witness the great war for the existence of the individual. And of course, that was the major conflict of the 20th century was collectivism versus individuality. I think, you know, in the good old Star Trek theology, it was the Borg versus the Star Trek, <laughs> you know, whatever. But uh, if you ever watch any of that, the Borg was just a revelation of everybody has the same thoughts, you you know, it's just melded into this one thing. But that's what collectivism, socialism, Marxism, communism, all that does. And I remember I was, you know, in Germany right after the wall came down. We took a train from Berlin to Nuremberg. We were astonished. There was no color. No color. Everything was gray or drab green. No color in eastern Germany. And when you talk to the people, which I did, we talked to a lot of them, they were so afraid to stand out. Because if anybody stood out as unique, they would immediately become a target. Everybody had to fit it. You know, a couple of years later, I rode across pretty much the same area. And it was shocking how much color there was. It was like every house had been painted these brilliant colors. There were flower boxes under every window, and there were, I mean, it was just like, you know, their humanity had been crushed, and all of a sudden they were able to express themselves again. But I think we've got to get this about how God loves diversity. We've got to love it too, and we cannot continue to try to crush and meld people into this uniform mess that really isn't anything. Now, let me carry on. In 1899, Churchill foresaw the intense conflict of what he called the Continental Powers. He said it would start in 1914. Now, he said this in 1898. It started in August of 1914. In 1911, he wrote in a memo the strategy Germany would use, where it would attack through the Low Countries, and that after 20 days, the French would be driven from the Meuse, and on the 40th day, they would be stopped, and then there would begin a long, deadly stalemate of static warfare, 
It happened exactly like he said. In 40 days, the French were stopped. They were driven from the Meuse in 20 days. In 40 days, the advance was stopped and then just descended into trench warfare. He foresaw the role of air power in the tank before the turn of the century, and there were no such thing as airplanes. He called the tank, there are going to be, he said there would be tractors with, with guns and armor. He called them tractors with guns and armor, but that's the tank. He foresaw World War I, as I said, in 1898. In 1932, he started predicting World War II. He then predicted the Cold War that would come after it. He predicted nuclear weapons in 1924. He predicted wireless communications where we would all be able to talk to each other. No wires, nothing. A lot of you are doing it right now. <laughs> he saw television, robotics, terrorism. He, you, it was, I mean, it was remarkable the way he described the rise of terrorism. He called it what it was, Islamic extremist. And he went on to describe it in great detail. He described the EMP. Do you know what the electromagnetic pulse? He described it. He called it electric warfare where it would just shut down electric power all over, all over. But you know what was so remarkable about this? They didn't have an electric grid when he prophesied that. It didn't even exist. Here's one. There will be an increasingly superficial media and giant government bureaucracies. Now here's something that tied all of his predictions together. Everything that I've described, everything that he foresaw would be threats to our existence, to the existence of humanity, and especially of the individual. I'm just saying, now in the South, I'm just saying is what you say when you feel like you've said something controversial, if you finish it with, I'm just saying, you're good. <laughs> and if you have to say something bad about somebody else, all you have to do is finish it with, but bless their hearts. <laughs> you're good. See, in the South, we perfected language. <laughs> I'm just saying, <clears throat> amen. But um, now, what I think Churchill had was a international watchman's anointing. Now, this is foundational to the prophetic ministry. Now, I appreciate what James said about us pioneering the prophetic, but listen, it was way before us. We kind of took some of it and did something. I don't know. But uh, I, I think we have. We've loved the prophetic. We've on, tried to honor it and just prophetic people. And we've been blessed with incredibly prophetic people. But uh, there's something coming of a prophetic that's going to eclipse anything in the Old Covenant. And I think anything we've seen in our times. It has to happen. It has to happen. Okay. But fundamental to all prophetic ministry is learning to be a watchman. Be a watchman on the wall, you know. And there were several places or positions for watchmen in Scripture. One was on the wall. You know, a lot of Scriptures about that. But you're, you're in a position where you could see the enemy coming from far off. Or you could see the king. And prepare the protocol for, to receive the king. I believe a watchman anointed, they're the ones who are going to foresee where moves of God break out and where he's about to move or come and things. But they're also, you know, if we were, if this ministry was stood up and functioning as it is called to be, 
God's people would not continue to be ambushed by the enemy. We would be setting ambushes for him. You know, if we resist him, he's supposed to be fleeing from us. So, but I think that's what Churchill saw. When foreseeing the Cold War between the West and communism, he also saw a strategy by which this war could be won by the West without firing a shot. He foresaw it does not have to be a hot war, and it can be won without having a hot war. That's why it was called a cold war, and it remained cold. And uh, if you know the story, when Ronald Reagan became president, he started, he put together a group, he called it competitive analysis. He said, I want you to study detente. You remember detente? And I want to know whether this strategy is working or not. It's called the Team B1 report. Team A was the one who came up with detente. Team B was the one who, competitive analysis, is this working? Challenge what we're doing. And their conclusion was, it's not working. It's helping them and hurting us, and they're winning on every front. And that's when Reagan, you know, their, their conclusion was, we need to have confrontation. But not with guns. It doesn't have to be done with guns. This is an economic war. And listen, most conflicts have been economic conflicts since World War II. You get right down to the root of them. But uh, he said, we can beat them with banks. We can beat them with currencies. But we've got to confront them. And we've got to, you know, have this standoff. And, uh, but that's exactly what happened. It was Wall Street that, that tore down communism as it was manifested in the, the old Soviet empire. And, you know, when China turned to free market, basic, some basic free market principles, we had the most people elevated out of poverty in the shortest period of time, it's like many times over than it had ever been done before in history. Now, there's a difference between capitalism and free enterprise. I think we need to understand it's really not capitalism versus socialism or communism or Marxism. It's free enterprise, free market. Now, under capitalism, you've got to have capital to have opportunity. Under a true free market economy, all you need is initiative. Okay, and that's what we've got to preserve is where someone with initiative can have opportunity. Where's the freedom to do that? But if you have free market and it starts being successful, you will have capitalists because they're going to win. And that's their winnings. So they're going to have capital to invest and all, and it just keeps on going. But capitalism is more the fruit of a successful free market. Done right. I'm just saying, I don't know why you needed that economic lesson. <laughs> but there's something about freedom we've got to get. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. That's why he put the tree of knowledge in the garden. There could be no true obedience if there wasn't the freedom to disobey. We can't just pressure and force people into our opinion. You can make a parrot say the right things and do the right things, but it'll never be in its heart. You can never force true religion on someone. Anyway, back to Winston, Sir Winston. In 1922, he foresaw a fanatical Islamic sect. It really almost clearly identified Al-Qaeda. Will create violence and havoc in the West. He saw many other things unfolding that are unfolding in our time. But then he said this. Mankind, now he said this right after World War I. And many of these things he was predicting even before that. But he said, 
mankind has never been in this position before without having improved appreciatively in virtue or enjoying wiser guidance it has gotten into its own hands the tools by which it can accomplish its own extermination it's true where's the wisdom and uh Where's the virtue? And we're entering increasingly dangerous times. But did any of you ever see that program on the History Channel, The Ten Ways the World Could Be Destroyed? It's one of the most encouraging programs I ever saw. (laughs) Started out with a Gamma burst. You know what a gamma burst is? It's an amazing thing, truly amazing. <clears throat> but when we sent up, sent, sent up satellites to uh, monitor the Soviet nuclear test, they started getting hit, hit with gamma bursts from space that were stronger than the biggest nuclear bombs going off on Earth. And they determined that these gamma bursts were coming from billions of light years away from other galaxies. And they also, in continued study, determined that these explosions were so powerful, if one went off in our half of the Milky Way, it would destroy all life on Earth in about 20 seconds. They said right down to the cell level. And the frequency with which they're going off in space, they should be going off pretty regularly. What's going on? And uh, then the next thing it talked about were meteorites. The degree to which meteorites are flying around out there, how we don't get hit every day, you know, with one big enough to wipe out, the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, they think another one hits like that, it could pretty much wipe out, you know, humankind. How do we make it through another day? I mean, I, after that, I was going, camera burst just missed me. I know that meteor has my name on it. You know, I mean, it's good night. How do we make it through another day? And that's the beginning. Each one became more likely to wipe us out. And there were 10 of them. The next one was the volcano under Yellowstone. They said that if that thing went off with its full potential, the oceans of the world would be the pH at the pH level of battery acid within two weeks. And pretty much all life on earth would be destroyed. Then they found out last year, if you read about this, they found out that the caldera under Yellowstone is at least three times as big as they thought. It's maybe a couple of hundred thousand years overdue. It's one of the most active calderas on the planet. That's why all the geysers, you know there are more geysers in Yellowstone than the rest of the world combined? You know, Old Faithful and all this, but they're everywhere. And why was I so encouraged? (laughs) I tell you, for us to make it through another day, somebody's keeping us. There's no way. I mean, it just went on and on. And you think, how how does the whole earth make, with this little speck of dust, not even the equivalent of a speck of dust compared to the size of the universe, and the whole universe is trying to kill us. Every day. By the way, gamma burst. You know what they then found? We always thought that lightning was created by the positive and negative you know, neutrons reaching for each other, neutrons and electrons just reaching out for each other. You know what they later found out? Lightning is caused by gamma bursts hitting a thunderhead. And we have up to 30,000, sometimes as high as 60,000 lightning strikes a minute on the earth. 
I mean, there are just storms everywhere going off all the time. But guess what? If it weren't for, for those gamma bursts hitting those clouds, setting off that lightning, we wouldn't be here. That starts the whole food chain. Lightning does something to the nitrogen in the earth so that plants can absorb it. It starts the entire food chain. God knew that and sent those gamma bursts off way gazillions of years, you know, whenever, to hit just at the right time so we could have a hamburger today. <laughs> Our God is so big. And he just stretched out the heavens like a tent curtain. And I think if we really knew how many times Satan had tried to kill us today with car accidents, with all kinds of other stuff we didn't even know about, you probably didn't get up today looking out for gamma burst or, you know, just, uh, we're being kept. We serve a really awesome God. And uh, <clears throat> now I appreciate uh, Churchill and his prophecies and the Lord using people, watchmen like that. They're watchmen over the nations. They're historic watchmen. I think Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were both watchmen, kind of on the walls that for, for saw many of the things unfold the way they have. There were many others. Uh, but, you know, when Churchill was asked, how did he get this extraordinary prophetic vision? You know what he answered? He said, you've got to do three things. Study history, study history, study history. Now, we all think, yeah, we just want a gift and want to download. But I think there was an important point to what he said, and I think there is truth to it. Why do we study history? I know we, it is, I think, a, a truth that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. I've studied church history for almost 50 years now. I'm getting close to, I've been studying history for 50 years, more than 50 years. <clears throat> I started when I was 15 years old. I just got an insatiable desire to understand history. And then when I became a Christian, I immediately got locked on to church history. Every spiritual generation has basically made the same mistakes as the previous one. May have done it differently, but it was the same route, same mistake. Now, I think there's grace involved. It's not just about having the knowledge or wisdom that comes from having the knowledge of history. That doesn't seem to work good. People can really know the right thing to do and still not do it. <clears throat> but there's something of tapping in to the grace of God. The only commandment with a promise that is in the Old Testament and the New Testament in Ephesians is honor your fathers and mothers that it may go well with you. How many of you would like for it to go well? And that your days may be long, you know, in the land the Lord's given you. Longevity and going well is rooted to honoring our fathers and mothers. What could be more dishonoring of them than forgetting them? Than forgetting them. And one of the ways they honored their fathers in the Old Testament was they drank from the wells that they had dug. Now, I'm, this is a particularly, <clears throat> I think, unique place to be saying this because I think those who set the spiritual DNA of our you know, national DNA code, genetic code, stood in this church and preached. Some of them, many of them. There were other influences. But there's something of, you know, it's not just knowing a little bit and maybe putting a flower by a gravestone or something like that. I think we've got to go deeper to really honor them. We've got to know. Remember when they threw the the uh, man into the grave and he just touched Elisha's bones and came back to life. There's something about just touching the bones of those who had life that can bring us back to life. And I think true 
revivals, and there are many kinds, but most revivals are very short-lived and need to be. They're not the main work of God. Vance Havner, one of the greatest revivalists, he said the revival is like the fire sale down at the department store. It gets all the press, gets all the attention. He said, but the real business of that store is the day-by-day merchandising. Now, well, I've done this at so many conferences. I won't bother you with it now, but we did it for a long time. We asked everybody, how many of you met the Lord through a crusade? Usually, if we have two or 3,000 people, there'd be a couple of hands. How many of you met the Lord through Christian television? A couple hands, sometimes a few. How many met the Lord through, <clears throat> you know, any other kind of evangelist? Be a few. How many of you met the Lord through the witness of a friend or relative? Everybody else's hand goes up. And it's usually more than 95%. My point is, we keep waiting for revival to come. Why not witness to your neighbor? You know, we, don't, we, we can't continue to be like the cripple standing by the pool of water waiting for someone to come stir it when Jesus himself is standing right next to us. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. I love revivals. I love moves of God. I love breakouts and all their form. They're exciting. You know, it's, it's wonderful, but you can't stay there and you can't build on revivals. I just ask you to consider most churches, and I think we may still be looking, maybe there's one that I can think of that had a genuine revival and it didn't destroy the church. Most of the time, because they wore, even the Brownsville church now, it's a shell of what it used to be. I mean, it's still surviving, that's great. But usually it does. It's because I don't think we really know how to handle it. And maybe sometimes we try to build on it and you can't. You've got to keep building your church during revival. How do you build your church? Revival will fill the doors for a while. I remember right after 9-11, every church in the country was overflowing. Two weeks later, they had less people. You know what built our country spiritually was the Great Awakenings. And they weren't revivals. They had revivals in them. Revivals would break out. And I mean, who doesn't get excited hearing about the Cane Ridge Revival and all these? I mean, it was astonishing some of the things that took place. But, you know, with all of the excitement and thrills, if we're not daily seeking to grow in the Lord, to know Him better, to sink our roots deeper. You know, we're called oaks of righteousness, or we're called to be oaks of righteousness. You know, one of the characteristics of an oak tree is that its root system below the ground is just as extensive as its branches are above the ground. That tree is just as big below ground. Are we? Are we? And... Uh, they say also another unique thing, there's a, I think it's called transpiration. When a mature oak tree has plenty of water, it will dump about 40 gallons of, of water into the atmosphere every day. That's why you go into forests, it feels so damp and wet. But when it gets dry, it stops that process. It stops dumping water out there and channels all of its water to its roots to sink their roots deeper to find deeper waters. What do we do when we get dry? I think you see in the patriarchs what many Christians do to this day. Every time there was a famine in the land, they turned to Egypt, which represented the world. Every time it led to their bondage or serious compromise. So what we've got to learn to do when it gets dry, just sink your roots deeper. Determine you're going to you know, if God's not moving in the gifts and everything, he's silent for a while, maybe it's so we'll sink our roots deeper into sound doctrine. 
And if we sink our roots deeper, then he can trust us with much more and it won't kill us. It's not, revivals are not supposed to destroy churches. But the shallow, if our roots are shallow, they certainly will. When the revival quits, which they always do, revivals are not intended to be, you know, everlasting. People get bored. Go chase the next new Christian flavor of the month. Just ask you to consider, you know, I, I want to do this in a way that I don't want to dishonor, but uh, those who've gone before us, they, they got us here. We wouldn't be here without them. But I think something's got to radically change in church life for us to make the next step. And to be prepared for what is now unfolding. There, there are signs everywhere of a third great awakening starting to unfold. But, you know, I remember when I was a young uh, pastor. I was the worst pastor I've ever heard of. <laughs> I probably still am. And... Uh, People would come to me with their problems. I'd say, why are you downloading on me? I've got my own problems. <laughs> and uh, now people needed counseling after they came to me. <laughs> I just never was good at that. But... Uh, you know, after a while, I got pretty popular as a speaker and teacher, and I was asked to speak at conferences, and, and my ministry was growing, and things were happening. I was so excited. Then I had a little encounter with the Lord. You know what he said? He said, you're not building churches. You're building franchises. They all serve the same burger, same Coke, same fries. He said, I'm not in any of them. You know, the Lord will bless many things he won't inhabit. He'll even visit places he won't inhabit. Where does he dwell? Where's his house? First question, the first two disciples who followed him asked, Rabbi, Master, where do you dwell? Not just where do you bless, not just where do you visit. Where's your house? Where do you stay? Where is he going to come and then stay? We know it's going to happen. His glory is going to fill his temple. Isaiah 60 is clear. When darkness covering the earth and deep darkness of people, his glory is going to rise and appear on his people. We know it's going to happen. And then verse 3 tells, you know, we win. The nations are going to come to the brightness of your rising. The nations are going to come to the light. You know, Jesus was recognized as the Messiah because the Spirit descended on him and stayed there. I think a lot of us leaked. We got filled with the Spirit, then we leaked. And there are repeated fillings in Scripture. I, I believe in that. Go back, get more, find the leak. Get... But there are a lot of things that will choke out the Word, that will, you know, starve out the Word. Are we bearing fruit day by day? Now, <clears throat> he loves diversity. Why is everything in the church so boringly uniform? Where's this pressure to conform come from? He makes us all different. He makes every snowflake different. And there's something there but I think it comes back to, too, the place he wants to dwell. You know, he, he wants his house to be where his family is, not just where there's an organization. When his church starts to become an organization more than a family, we lose the essence of who we're called to be. 
Now, there are two major Greek words, you know, translated the church in Scripture. One of them is ecclesia that talks about the organization, the government, the <clears throat> but then the other one's koinonia. I know if you're Greek, it's koinonia. But the South, we have perfected language. It's koinonia <laughs> in the South. <clears throat> but koinonia is a bonding together so strong, you cannot separate the parts without them dying. Now listen, the only place in Scripture, of all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, where we're told why Christians get sick, why they get weak, why they get sick, and why they die prematurely, is not having koinonia. I think you can have ecclesia. You can build a lot on ecclesia. You can build a whole lot on good marketing techniques and everything else, but is the Lord there? is the Lord in our midst. Yeah, the blessings of the Lord will be there. You come together, he's going to bless you as much as he can. But I think we've got to have a higher vision than just for his blessings. Now, it says if we abide in the light as he is in the light, it doesn't say we'll have ecclesia. It says we'll have koinonia and the blood of Jesus, his son. Where is the koinonia? Now, I think if you start building on Ecclesia, you'll probably never have Koinonia. And I see it in the book of Acts. They had Koinonia first and then added Ecclesia as they needed it. As they needed it. But it was a family first. <clears throat> Anyone, Mike Bickle, you say, anybody will quit except for a person in love. Yeah. And you will quit just if it's, if it's just doctrine or something, you will quit. Under enough pressure, you will quit, but a person in love will never quit. We've got to love God and we've got to love one another. <clears throat> now, I've Start off, patriotism is going to win. It is, and there, there's a place for that. And I think there's a place for us understanding this is our family, this is our nation, this is our... But it doesn't mean you don't love the other nations. It doesn't mean we do this selfishly. But there is a place where you do do it selfishly. When under threat. You know, is it... <clears throat> Even the New Testament, we're told, if a man doesn't take care of his own and the members of his own household, he's worse than an infidel. And one of the things taking care of your family is protecting them. That's just fundamental basic to our most basic responsibility. So in some ways, we have to do that. But it doesn't mean we don't love the nations. We want to do good by them, all of them. God created all of them. But you've, we've, our love has to spring from our own security and our own strength. I'm talking about us being secure in who we are in the Lord and everything else. Where we're not afraid of the distinctions. We're not afraid of people who are different from us. We love it. Our first response to seeing somebody who's different should be, wow, I'm going to get to learn something from this person. We're not going to be threatened. We shouldn't be threatened by it. And, you know, racism is one of the ultimate evils of the human heart because it's built on two of the ultimate evils, fear or pride. You become a racist when you fear those who are different or you believe you're superior because you're different. And God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. That's an ultimate pride, pride in the flesh. And if anyone's got any sense, they're going to do anything to to seek God's grace, and that's not the way to get God's grace, to be racist. But spiritual bigotry is the same thing. Well, we think we're better than other denominations or movements. No, there's, but we have to have a vision for our own denomination. Shouldn't have to compromise that. 
I know a lot of people think, oh, we got to come into unity. I think without the denominations, we would not have a hope of coming into unity. Why? Israel had denominations. They were called tribes. And they had their own vision, their own prophecies, their own purpose, their own inheritance. And they never, should never compromise that. That was given to them by God. But they also need to recognize how they were also a part of the holy nation. We, I think we need the tribes. I mean, maybe the denominations will go away sometime or whatever. We won't need them because we, we've gotten to the place of maturity. We so respect uniqueness. But I think right now we need them. I do think we need them. And I think we need to honor them. Most of them did spring out of great moves of God that deserve honoring. They deserve honoring, and that's a part of us going forward. But we have to go forward. We can't park there. We can't park there. So can we do both? Can we do both? I think we can if we learn that his house is a place of access to heaven. And what we need is his, from him, from his throne, from his realm. And when we have access to that, we are not going to be intimidated by all the different things going on on earth. If you've seen the king, you're not going to be impressed by any other earthly king. There's no way. Presidents, kings, all of their pomp is pitiful. We honor them because we're, we're commanded to give honor to whom honor is due. But you just can't be impressed with people. That frees you to really love them. That frees you where it's not being a respecter of persons. But we do it because, as the Lord says, you do unto the least of his little ones, you've done it to him. And how many of you would like to take Jesus to lunch tomorrow? Would you not stay up all night thinking of the most ultimate restaurant and the, you know, just everything about it? Who wouldn't if you got to take Jesus to lunch? You can. He says, you do unto the least of his little ones, you've done it to him. We can take him to lunch tomorrow. And I think when we start behaving like that, he said, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If we can't see him and those he sends to us, we're not going to see him. But we all think it's the famous preacher or, or whatever. One of my favorite stories, the road to Emmaus, I'm going to finish with that. They couldn't recognize Jesus himself preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, had to be. Christ preaching Christ from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. They still couldn't recognize him. It says in Mark, he appeared to them in a different form. Now, I think he still does that all the time. We're looking, we want this person to prophesy over us. Jesus is in that seemingly humble person in the elevator. Had a word for you. We didn't have time for. A friend of mine produced the movie The Shack. You ever heard of that? I had I struggled with the book. I loved it. It tackled some ultimate issues with incredible brilliance. But it had some things in it I had trouble with. You know, I still do. They got him out for the movie. You got to go see this movie. It was done way better than I ever dreamed. And I knew these guys were going to do a good job, but it came out way better. But listen, if you're struggling with, okay, well, God the Father coming in the form of a black woman, when you get it, it had nothing to do with God being a woman or a man. It had nothing to do with it had to do with this guy grew up with his father just beating the 
daylights out of him and his mother, everything else, just terrible time. And as this black woman says, you just couldn't have taken it if I'd come as a father because of where you are. Later, she or he or it or what became a he. All right, so I'm just saying, don't get hung up on stuff like that anyway. I know we took a bunch of guys. Did you go with us, Robin, to see that movie? Oh, that's, I, I think everybody in the theater bawled. I know I couldn't wait to leave that movie to run home and get with God. It's like, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. I'm going to the car. I'm going home. <laughs> I mean, it just had that impact on you. You had to get with, and uh, it does have some, it does have an incredible anointing on it. And it still had some stuff that challenged me. But uh, I think the point is he still likes to come as a, in a different form. If we're Baptist, he'll come as a charismatic. And if we're charismatic, he'll come as a Presbyterian. And he's still trying to break down these things that make us into old wineskins so he can give us some new life. Larry Randolph says he... One of his names should be Jehovah Sneaky. <laughs> he loves to sneak up on us. Now, I think we're going to experience I bl I'm believing for right here. I'm praying for you in this place. I'm, and, uh, but don't, you don't have to wait for someone to come stir the waters. He's here now. He's here now. And we would see him more if we'd start to love each other. And we would start to pursue his, being his house, which is built on Koinonia. I'm just saying, bless your hearts. Yeah. <laughs>